Hey yo everybody. Um well, we are uh finally in the city that they were trying to get to. Um and now our heroes must part ways with their new friend Sadness. Um of course there's much melancholy going around. So we'll see what lies in store now. Uh this is a long chapter. We might have to split it in two. We're going to see how it rolls. Um, so off we go on to chapter six. I care not, Fortune, what you mean and I. You cannot rob me of free nature's grace. You cannot shut the windows of the sky, through which Aurora shows her brightening face. You cannot bar my constant feet to trace the woods and lawns by living stream at eve. Let health my nerves and finer fibres brace, and I their toys to the great children leave. Of fancy, reason, virtue, naught can me bereave. Thompson In the morning, Valancourt breast breakfasted with St. Aubert and Emily, neither of whom seemed much refreshed by sleep. The languor of illness still hung over St. Aubert, and Emily's fears of his disorder appeared to be increasing fast upon him. She watched his looks with anxious affection, and their expression was always faithfully reflected in her own. At the commencement of their acquaintance, Valancourt had made known his name and family. St. Aubert was not a stranger to either, for family's estates, which were now in the possession of an elder brother of Valancourt, were little more than twenty miles at distance from La Vallée, where he had sometimes met the elder of Valancourt on visits to the neighbourhood. This knowledge had made him more willingly receive his present companion, for, though his countenance and manners have won him the acquaintance of St. Aubert, who was very apt to trust in the intelligence of his own eyes, with respect to countenances he would not have accepted these as sufficient introductions to that of his daughter. The breakfast was almost as silent as the supper of the preceding night, but their musing was at length interrupted by the sound of the carriage-wheels that which were to bear away St. Aubert and Emily. Valancourt started, for his chair, started from his chair and went to the window. It was indeed the carriage, and he returned to his seat without speaking. The moment was now come when they must part. St. Aubert told Valancourt that he hoped he would never pass the valley without favouring him with a visit, and Valancourt, eagerly thanking him, assured him that he never would. As... He said he looked timidly at Emily, who tried to smile away the seriousness of her spirits. They passed a few minutes in interesting conversation, and St. Aubert then led the way to the carriage, Emily and Valancourt following in silence. The latter lingered at the door several minutes after they were seated, and none of the party seemed to have the courage to say, Farewell. At length, St. Aubert pronounced a melancholy word, to which Emily passed to Valancourt, who returned it, with a dejected smile, and the carriage drove on. <sighs> the travellers remained for some time in a state of tranquil pensiveness, which was not unpleasing. St. Aubert interrupted it by observing, "'This is a very promising young man. It is many years since I have been so pleased with any person, on so short an acquaintance.' He brings back my memory of the days of my youth, when every scene was new and delightful. St. Aubert smiled, and sunk again into a reverie, and Emily looked back upon the road as they passed. Valancourt was seen at the door of the little inn, following him with his eyes. He perceived her, and waved his hand, and she returned the adieu, till the winding road shut her from his sight. "'I remember when I was about his age,' 
resumed St. Aubert, that I thought and felt exactly as he does. The world was opening up to me then. Now it is closing. My dear sir, do not think so gloomily, said Emily, trembling in a trembling voice. I hope you have many, many years to live for your own sake, for my sake. Ah, my Emily, replied St. Aubert, for thy sake. Well, I hope it is so. He wiped away a tear that was stealing down his cheek and threw a smile upon his countenance, and then said in a cheering voice, There is something with the ardor and ingenuousness of youth which is particularly pleasing to the contemplation of an old man, if his feelings had not been entirely corroded by the world. It is cheering, it is cheering and reviving, like the view of spring to a sick person. His mind catches somewhat the spirit of the season. His eyes are lighted up with transient sunshine. Valancourt is the spring to me. Emily, who pressed her father's hand affectionately, had never before so listened with much pleasure to praises he bestowed. No, not even when he bestowed them on herself. They travelled on amongst the vineyards, woods, and pastures, delighted with the romantic beauty of the landscape, <laughs> which was bounded on one side by the grandeur of the Pyrenees, and on the other by the ocean, and soon after noon they reached the town of, oh boy, yeah, I hope I don't have to pronounce that many times. Um... It's situated on the Mediterranean. Oh, dear. I I forgot to mute my phone. I'm so sorry. It's been so long since that's happened. Just one second. Uh, which was situated on the Mediterranean. Here they dined and rested towards the cool of day, but they pursued their way alongst the shores, those enchanting shores, which extended into Languedoc. Emily gazed with enthusiasm on the vastness of the sea, the surface varying and the lights and shadows fell on its woody banks, mellowed with autumnal tints. Hmm, that word always gets me. St. Aubert was impatient to reach Perpignan, hmm? where he expected letters from Monsieur Concel, and was expectation of these letters had induced him to leave this city, for his feeble frame had required immediate rest. After traveling a few miles, he fell asleep, and Emily, who had put two or three of her books into the carriage on leaving La Vallée, now had the leisure of looking into them. She sought for one in which Valancourt had been reading the day before, and hoped for the pleasure of retracing a page over which the eyes of a beloved friend had lately passed, and dwelling on the passages on which he had admired, and of permitting them to speak to her in a language of his own mind, and to bring himself to her presence. On searching for the book, she could find it nowhere, but in its stead perceived a volume of Pertriac's poems, and that belonged to Valancourt whose name was written in it, and from which he had frequently read passages to her, with all the pathetic expression and characterized feelings of the author. She hesitated in believing it would have been sufficiently apparent to almost any other person that he had purposely left behind this book, instead of the one she had lost, and the love had prompted the exchange. But, having opened it with the impatient pleasure, and observed the lines of his pencil drawn along the various passages that he read aloud, and others of more descriptive of delicate tenderness than he had void dared to trust his voice with, the conviction came at length to her mind. From some moments she was conscious of being then of only being beloved, 
Then a recollection of all the variations of tone and countenance which he had recited these sonnets and of the soul which spoke their expression pressed her memory and she wept over the memorial of his affection. Oh my goodness, girl. Like, calm down. I know we were all that bad when we had our first love, but okay, calm down. They arrived at Perpignan soon after sunset, where St. Aubert found, as he had expected, letters from Monsieur Cancel, and the contents of which so evidently and grievously affected him that Emily was alarmed and pressed him, as far as her delicacy would permit, to disclose the occasion of his concern, but he answered only by tears and immediately began to talk on other topics. Emily, though she forbore to press the one most interesting to her, was greatly affected by her father's manner and passed the night in sleepless solicitude. In the morning, they pursued their journey along the coast towards Lucate, another town in the Mediterranean, situated on the borders of Languedoc and Rousselin. On the way, Emily renewed the subject of the preceding night, appeared so deeply affected by St. Aubert's silence and dejection that he relaxed from his re reserve. I was unwilling, my dear Emily, said he, to throw a cloud of the pleasure you received from those scenes, and meant therefore to conceal for present some circumstances, which, however, you must at length have been must be acquainted. But your anxiety has defeated my purpose. You suffer as much from this, perhaps, as you will from the knowledge of the facts I have to relate. Monsieur Cancel's visit proved not an unhappy one to me. He came to tell me part of the news he is now confirmed. You may have heard mention of a Monsieur Motteville of Paris, but you did not know that the chief of my personal property was invested in his hands. I had great confidence in him, and I am yet willing to believe that he is not unholy worthy of my esteem. A variety of circumstances have concurred to ruin him, and I am ruined with him. St. Hubert paused to conceal his emotion. The letters I received from your Sir Cancel, resumed he, struggling to speak with firmness, enclosed with others from Motteville, which confirmed all I dreaded. Then we must quit La Vallée, said Emily after a pause of silence. That is yet uncertain, replied St. Aubert. It will depend upon the compromise Motteville is able to make with his creditors. My income, you know, was never large, but it will now be reduced to little indeed. It is for you, Emily, for you, my child, that I am most afflicted. His last words faltered. Emily smiled tenderly upon him through her tears. Then, endeavoring to overcome her emotion, My dear father, said she, do not grieve for me, or for yourself. We may yet be happy. If La Valley remains to us, we must be happy. We will retain only one servant, and you shall scarcely perceive the change in your income. Be comforted, my dear sir. We shall not want those luxuries which others so value so highly, since we have never had the taste for them, and poverty cannot deprive of us of many consolations. It cannot rob us of the affection we have for each other, or degrade us in our own opinion, or that any other person whose opinion we ought to value. St. Aubert concealed his face with his handkerchief, and was unable to speak, but Emily continued to urge her father through the truths which had which himself had impressed upon her mind. Besides, my dear sir, poverty cannot deprive us of intellectual delights. It cannot deprive you of comfort of affording me examples of fortitude and benevolence, nor me the delight of consoling a beloved parent. 
It cannot deny our taste for the grand and the beautiful, or deny us the means of indulging in it. For the scenes of nature, those sublime spectacles, which so infinitely superior to all artificial luxuries, are open for the enjoyment of the poor as well as the rich. Of that, what then have we to complain so long as we are not in want of necessities? Pleasures such as wealth cannot buy will still be ours. We retain then sublime luxuries of nature and lose only the frivolous ones of art. St. Aubert could not reply. He caught Emily to his bosom, and their tears flowed together, but they were not tears of sorrow. After this language of the heart, all other would have seemed feeble, and they remained silent for some time. Then St. Aubert conversed as before, for his mind had not recovered its natural tranquillity, or at least his mind had, or at least assumed the appearance of it. <laughs> they reached the town of Luthiate early in the day, but St. Aubert was very weary, and they determined to pass the night there. In the evening, he exerted himself so far as to walk with his daughter to the view of the environs that overlooked the lake of Ludicate and the Mediterranean parts of Rousselon along with the Pyrenees, and the wide extent of the luxuriant providence of Languedoc, now blushing with ripened vintage, and the, which the peasants were beginning to gather. St. Aubert and Emily saw the busy great groups, not grapes, groups, caught in joyous song that was wafted on the breeze, and anticipated with apparent pleasure their next day's journey over this gay region. He designed, however, to still wind along the seashore. To return home immediately was his part wish, but from this he was withheld by a desire to lengthen the pleasure of the journey which he gave his daughter, and try the effect of the sea air on his own disorder. On the following day, therefore, they recommended their journey through long, recommenced their journey through Languedoc, wandering along the shores of the Mediterranean, the Pyrenees still forming a magnificent background of their prospects, while on their right was the ocean, and on their left the wide extended plains melting into the blue horizon. St. Aubert was pleased and conversed much with Emily, yet his cheerfulness was sometimes artificial, and sometimes a shade of melancholy would steal upon his countenance and betray him. This was soon chased away by Emily's smile, who smiled, however, with an aching heart, for she saw that his misfortunes preyed upon his mind and upon his enfeebled frame. It was evening when they reached the small village of Upper Longdelock, where they meant to pass the night, but the place could not afford them beds, for there, too, was the time of the vintage, and they were obliged to proceed to the next post. The languor of illness and fatigue which returned upon St. Aubert immediate, required immediate repose, and the evening was now far advanced, but from necessity there was no appeal, and he ordered Michael to proceed. The rich plains of Languedoc, which exhibited all the glories of the vintage, which the gaieties of the French festival no longer awakened, St. Aubert to pleasure, whose condition formed a mournful contrast to the hilarity and youthful beauty that surrounded him. As his languid eyes moved over the scene, he considered that they would soon perhaps be close forever on this world. Those distant sublime mountains he said secretly as he gazed upon a chain of Pyrenees that stretched towards the west. These luxurious plains, this blue vault, the cheerful light of day will shut from my eyes. The song of the peasant, the cheerful voice of man, will no longer sound for me. Intelligence eyes of Emily seemed to read what passed in the mind of her father, and she fixed them on her face with every expression of tender pity as he recalled his thoughts from every delusatory object of regret, and remembered only that he must leave his daughter without protection. This reflection changed with regret to agony, and he sighed deeply and remained silent while she seemed to understand the sigh, for she pressed his hand affectionately, and they turned to the window to conceal her tears. 
the sun was now through the last yellow gleam of waves upon the mediterranean and the gloom of twilight spread fast over the scene till only the melancholy ray appeared on the western horizon marking the point where the sun had set amid the vapors of the autumnal evening hi i got it that time a cool breeze now came from the shore and emily let down the glass but the air which was which was refreshing to health as chilling to sickness and st hubert desired that the window might be drawn up increasing illness now made him more anxious than ever to finish the day's journey and he stopped the muleteer to inquire how far they had to go to the next post he replied nine miles i feel i am unable to proceed further said st hubert inquire as you go if there is any house on the road that would accommodate us for the night he sunk back into the carriage and michael cracking his whip in the air set off and continued on at a full gallop till st hubert almost fainting called him to stop emily looked anxiously from the window and saw a peasant walking at a little distance from the road for whom they waited till he came up and he asked it there was any house in the neighborhood that could accommodate travelers he replied that he knew of none there is a chateau indeed among the woods on the right added he but i believe ever sees nobody and i cannot show you the way for i'm almost a stranger there yes they are southern hick accents in france i know what you're thinking but it's just what's going to happen St. Hubert was going to ask him for some further questions concerning the chateau, but the man abruptly passed on. After some consideration, he ordered Michael to proceed slowly to the woods. Every moment now deepened the twilight and increased the difficulty of finding the road. Another peasant soon after passed. "'Which is the way to the chateau in the woods?' cried Michael. "'The chateau in the woods!' exclaimed the peasant. "'Do you mean that with a turret yonder?' "'I don't know. It's for a turret, as you'd call it.' I mean that white piece of building which we see at a distance there among the trees. Yes, that's a turret. Why, who are you to be going thither? <laughs> Sounds really funny. <laughs> so the man was surprised. St. Aubert, on hearing this odd question and observing the peculiar tone which was delivered, looked out from the carriage. We are travelers, said he, who are in search of an accommodation for the night. Is the house hereabout? "'None, monsieur, unless you have your mind to try your luck yonder,' replied the peasant, pointing to the woods. "'But I would not advise you to go there.' "'To whom does the chateau belong?' "'I scarcely know myself, monsieur.' "'Is it uninhabited, then?' "'No, not inhabited. The steward and housekeeper are there, I believe.' On hearing this, St. Aubert determined to proceed to the chateau, the risk of refusal of being accommodated for the night.' and risk the refusal of being accommodated for the night. He therefore desired the countryman to show Michael the way, and bade him to expect reward for his trouble. The man was for a moment silent, and said he was going on other business, but the road could not be missed if they were up at the avenue to the right to which he pointed. St. Hubert was going to speak, but the peasant wished him a good night, and walked on. The carriage now moved towards the avenue, which was guarded by a gate, and Michael, having dismounted to open it, entered they entered between rows of ancient oak and chestnut whose intermingled branches formed a lofty arch above this was something so gloomy and desolate in the appearance of this avenue and its lonely silence that emily almost shuddered as she passed along and recollecting the manner in which the peasant had mentioned the chateau she gave mysterious meaning to his words as she had not suspected when he uttered them these apprehensions, however, she tried to check, considering that they were probably the effect of melancholy imagination, 
which her father's situation and a consideration of her own circumstances had made susceptible to every impression they passed on slowly for they were in now almost darkness which together with the unevenness of the ground made the frequent roots of old trees that shot up above the soil made it necessary to proceed with caution on a sudden michael stopped the carriage and st aubert looked from the window to inquire the cause he perceived a figure at some distance moving up the avenue the dusk would not permit him to distinguish what it was but he bade michael to go on this seems a strange wild place said michael there is no house hereabout don't john or think we'd better turn back go a little further if we see no house then we will return to the road replied st aubert michael proceeded with reluctance and the extreme slowness of his pace made st aubert look again from the window to hasten him when he saw the same figure he was somewhat startled probably the gloominess of the spot made him more liable to alarm than usual however this might be he now stopped michael and bade him to call to the person in the avenue please your honour he may be a robber said michael it does not please me replied st aubert who could not forbear smiling at the simplicity of his phrase and we will therefore return to the road for i see no probability of meeting here with what we seek michael turned about immediately and was retracing his way with a alacrity when a voice was heard from the trees on the left it was not the voice of command or distress but a deep hollow tone which seemed scarcely human the man whipped his mules till they went as fast as possible regardless of the darkness the broken ground and next the whole party nor once till stop till he reached the gate which opened from the avenue to the high road and there he went a more moderate pace i am very ill said st aubert taking his daughter's hand you are worse then sir cried emily extremely alarmed by his manner you are worse and here is no assistance good god what is to be done he leaned his head on her shoulder while she endeavoured to support him with her arm and michael was again ordered to stop when the rattling wheels of the carriage had ceased music was heard on the air to emily it was the voice of hope oh we have been near some human habitation said she help may soon be had and we're going to stop there in the middle of chapter six while it's very exciting okay um yeah i was trying to find a good place to pause and i think that'll be a good place because yeah yeah i will stop on the moment of hope in the midst of this very odd thing going on so a couple things there um one of my favorite hero moments was observed and when they said bye to valancourt and she turns around and he's still watching them go and waves um oh that's such a good moment. I have this thing about heroes. Um, heroes always look back. Uh, good guys always look back to see what's going on. Um, they want to know and remind themselves of the place they are leaving and the people they are leaving. Uh, bad guys never look back. And Emily looked back, and Valancourt was still there looking after them. So as very good, it was a very good moment for me, literature-wise. I just love it when that sort of thing happens. Ugh, it makes me so happy. Um, 
sad to leave him behind. Uh, very distressing to find out about Sanibar's situation with finances. Um, this is particularly awful for Emily. Uh, her dad's fortune, it sounds like, is her fortune. Uh, lots of women in this era, um, and, well, in 1500s, a little less so, but, like, in Radcliffe's era, Jane Austen's era, uh, that there was a set-aside inheritance that the women would have, and it usually was earmarked specifically for them, and it was their dowry. Um, and then, usually they didn't get a separate inheritance, but sometimes they did, anyway. Um... And your dowry price determined where you could marry in the world, how good your life was going to be. Um, without money, your life starts to look pretty, pretty dismal and you start moving down in the world. And there is a break point where um, you either are have enough money to be wealthy enough to run your, you know, have a servant and have a house and not work. Or you have to be one of the working class. And um, I know in Jane Austen's era, it's 500 pounds a year is the break point. And that was for men. I mean, obviously, women to live alone was darn near impossible. You had to have a man to sign all of your legal documents and look over your money. And it was very difficult. But um, so Emily's the one who's in a sticky spot because of her dad's ill health. Uh, I mean, well, who has ill health too, but the lack of his money. His money being gone is going to hurt Emily. Uh, she sounds like is very young, naive, doesn't want her dad to worry about it. Totally understandable. And now it's extremely concerning. He's taken her on this journey. How is she going to get home if he dies mid-journey? Like, that's the thing that's freaking me out. Like, this man gets worse all the time. This journey's not picked up his health at all. It's made his health worse. And... How is she going to get home? Like, there's been a lot of this that a woman traveling alone all the way back home, this insane. How is she going to be able to manage all of these, like, stops and be at an inn by herself with just a manservant? Like, go up to some stranger's house and ask for a place to stay for the night? I, I can't even fathom the ill-judgedness of this trip at this point um which is i guess why they mentioned at the beginning that she was a little surprised when he didn't even take a valet with him like another servant to help out but now i'm just like what about emily what, what, what this is so bad um but now we also know why he dismissed all those servants before they left town was because he's not planning on hiring them back <laughs> he has no money um yeah, so anyway, so I'm worried about Emily. Uh, slightly less worried about Dad. Uh, this whole trip is not going quite so well. Um, huh. So we have one mystery answered, though. We now know why Dad was so upset um, with his brother-in-law, because his brother-in-law brought him bad news. We still don't know who the portrait of that lady was that he was weeping over, so we'll have to figure that one out yet. But um, for now... We have one mystery solved, and now they're up this, like, weird place, trying to find a place to sleep for the night again. Oh, these are times where you get very glad, at least I get very glad, that I am blessed enough to live with, you know, a smartphone and 
I can go on a trip and find a place to put my head at night in general and not have to worry about it. And I'm not old and feeble and can't afford to just sleep in my carriage overnight, you know. Anyway, this is all so intense, you guys. Um, it's the start of October, by the way. Happy October, everyone. I still hope to be finishing this book by the end of October, which means we need to get a lot more reading done. <laughs> so we'll make that our goal. And I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Have a nice first day of October.